This is Mike Keneally. You're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey guys, this is Paul from Between the Barrier to Me, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hi, this is Joe Satriani, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hello and welcome to episode 303 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, Sean, coming from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Got a couple of great guitar players on the episode for you this week. We got Paul Wagner from the band Between the Buried and Me, and we also got the one and only Joe Satriani. So let's dive right into things. We'll start off with Paul from Between the Buried and Me. Between the Buried and Me is currently out on the road with August Burns Red and Good Tiger, and they'll be hitting stage AE on April 9th. Before we get to that interview, though, here's a track from their most recent album, Coma Ecleptic. This track is called Memory Palace. everyone on the line with me i have paul from between the buried and me how you doing today paul doing great thanks for having me oh thanks for taking the time to talk to us uh you guys are currently out on the road with august burns red and good tiger uh so we'll talk a little bit about the tour um so again uh, you're maybe about halfway through the tour how's the tour going so far it's going great so far we've uh you know we're, we're friends with both bands we've, we've toured with with all the guys before, mm-hmm. although the good tiger guys were in a different band when we toured with them. But, um, yeah, so it's just kind of a great tour with a lot of good friends, a lot of jokes, a lot of laughs and some great music as well. So, right. um, and, and the turnouts have been wonderful. So I uh, no complaints here. It's, it's all good things. Um, when you're putting together a tour package like this, uh, are you guys involved with, you know, picking the bands that you guys are going to tour with? 
Yeah, we're pretty, um, yeah, we're pretty hands on with, with who we tour with and, mm-hmm. you know, like I know a lot of bands probably just sort of do whatever their manager or booking agent tells them to or whatever. Right. But, um, yeah, we, we like to pick bands that based on, you know, diversity, you know, we like to tour with bands that sound different from us. Mm-hmm. Um, this tour being a prime example of that or bands that we just have a lot of respect for or that bands we're friends with. There's a lot of factors at play, but we definitely are very much uh, hands-on in terms of like who, who the tour is with. Right. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, so far for this tour, uh, what, what has been your, your biggest highlight? Oh gosh, man. Uh, well, I'll tell you my biggest low light was last night when uh, my my North Carolina Tar Heels lost a heartbreaker of a <laughs> NCAA championship game. That was the lowest point. Right. But the highest point uh, related to that is I actually won the tour bracket pool and I won a uh, hundred bucks. Nice. So, so yeah, it's double edged sword there. <laughs> but uh, but you know, I guess show wise, I mean, they, all the shows have been been really great. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. There's other than that, there's really no, like, you know, highlight. It's all just been every day has been great. You know, it's just been a wonderful, wonderful tour every right. single day. Every single show is, is awesome. So now, yeah. sorry, um, talking about like, you know, set lists and things like that, you guys have, you know, eight wow. albums out. You've got several concept albums. Is it hard putting together a, a set list for a show like this? It's yeah, it's like sometimes it's almost impossible, right? Uh, because of the length of songs and stuff like that. And I feel like with every album we write, you know, now we have all this new stuff. Mm-hmm. And of course, as a as a band, like we want to play new stuff because that's what we're most uh, passionate about, I guess. But you know, you have to be aware that a lot of the fans want to hear sort of the old classics, so you have to squeeze those in somehow. It's really hard, you know. Every single tour, it gets harder and harder because you're trying to incorporate the new stuff and still play songs that people want to hear, and and you're trying to do that all in the con in the constraints of like an hour long set right. or whatever. And for us, that's only like seven songs. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's um, it is. It's really difficult to put together a set list. Um. Yeah, and it never gets easier, unfortunately. Right, right. Now, is there any songs that you know you you love playing more than others, or is there songs that you would you know rather not play anymore? <laughs> yes, and yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, again, we we love playing the new stuff because it's so much, it's fresh to us. You know, mm-hmm. it's not we haven't played it a million times. So, you know, on this tour, we're doing a few you know a few new songs and those are always fun to play. I love, I still love playing Bam and Wolf and ectopic stroll from the new record. And, right. Um, and you know, we're busting out some like older material, like some great misdirect material, which we haven't played in a while. So mm-hmm. that almost has a freshness to it just cause we haven't played it in so long. Um, and then, the, you know, there are some old songs that, that we're busting out for this tour and they're just so old that it seems like we're just at this point we're playing it's almost like we're playing a cover song because we're such a different band now but um that being said you know we may not really we may not really connect with those songs anymore musically but the fan interaction Mm -hmm. is what is really special about those songs and seeing the people that 
have been listening to us for, uh, you know, a decade or more, they get really excited to hear that song. The immediate reward of, or the immediate gratification of the fans enjoying it and, and being interactive with the song and stuff, it, it totally gives the song new life and it, and it does make it really awesome to, to play. Is there, uh, like the older stuff you mentioned, like, you know, you're not as connected to it anymore as you may have been when you first wrote it. Um, is there anything you do to these songs live to maybe kind of freshen them up or bring them to like where you guys are at musically now? Uh, a little bit, you know, like Blake, um, you know, Blake didn't play drums on some of those older mm-hmm. albums, first couple. So he, you know, he might kind of spice up the song a little bit with his own drumming style. Right. Um, we may like add, you know, some of the older stuff doesn't really have any keyboard in it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Tommy might play like a keyboard pad, you know, sort of underneath some of the parts to, to give it more depth. Right. Um, so yeah, there's little things here and there that we'll do to a song to make it, I guess, more try to bridge the gap a little bit mm-hmm. between like the band, the way the band was then to the way the band is now. Right. But, um, in general, you know, we do, we are trying to capture that same vibe. I mean, that's, I guess that's the whole point of playing mm-hmm. the older songs. And so you're really trying to sort of go back in time and, and dig up some old, <laughs> some old stuff that's been buried for a long time. Right. So, uh, you know, we try to stay true to, to what it sounded like then, you know. Now, um, can we talk a little bit about the, the latest album, uh, Coma Ecliptic? Um, it's been out for, came out in July last year, so it's it's coming up onto a year here real soon. Um, mm-hmm. Looking back at that album, I mean, the album came out, it got a lot of some great reviews, you know, from critics and from fans, and it's, it's a great album. Um, has it looking back at it after it's had some time to digest for you, is it, uh, did that album accomplish what you guys were hoping to? Absolutely. I mean, we really wanted to grow as a band and, and maybe shift gears a little bit to, to incorporate more of a sort of a melodic, Mm -hmm. uh, melodic influence and, and really to try to approach songwriting in a very different way. Um, in the past, everything's been very, you know, sort of riff oriented and guitar oriented. And right. we wanted to do something, you know, that was, that was more like orchestrated in a sense, you know, mm-hmm. between all the instruments to try to every, every instrument had its place in the mix and stuff like that. That's really what we wanted to do with Coma. And, um, and I think we, we totally achieved that. And by doing so, you know, we achieved our, our most diverse and dynamic record that we've, we've ever made i think and it's right. our best sounding album so yeah we we're we're just really super super proud of how it came out and um you know i guess look we're always looking forward so we're, right. we're looking forward honestly to doing the next one and seeing where we can grow from there but um you know after in hindsight you know yeah that wouldn't have changed anything about coma i think we i think we did exactly what we really set out to do Cool. Now, when you're writing an album that's as you know intricate and nuanced as, as Coma is, um, do you actually guys think about you know is there ever a moment when you're writing it's like you know oh shit how am I going to play this live or something like that? <laughs> yeah, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean pretty much everything I write, I I can't play it um, at the time that I write it. Right. Um, from a technical standpoint, I mean it requires a lot of like you know, just sitting down with a metronome and kind of figuring it all out. And that's just part of being, I guess, a guitar player. You're always trying to push yourself to try new stuff and try things that you've really never played in the past. And 
so yeah, there's a concern there. Um, but also with a lot of the newer stuff, in some ways, a lot of times it's, it's a lot simpler okay. on guitar because, like I said, we're trying to almost, you know, instead of just trying to show off on the guitar, we're just trying to write cool music that is melodically grounded and has like a a more listenable, um, I guess, that more listenable mix, you know, like everything right. can be heard. And, and in order to achieve that, you really almost have to simplify what you're doing on a, on the guitar. Um, so it's a little bit of both, but yeah, I mean, we're always, I think we, we, we don't write with the, um, fear that we can't play something live. Like we write exactly what we want to write and Mm -hmm. how, and what we want to hear. And then we cross that bridge when we come to it, you know, when it's time to get it ready for the live show, then we tackle that. You know, we say, okay, now we've got to figure out how we're going to present this thing live. How are we going to, who's going to play what, how are we going to do this? You know, Dan, you're playing a bass part here but you're also there's a keyboard part here that you need to play which one are you going to play you can't play both you know (laughs) things like that so uh yeah you know tom you know there's parts where the keyboard is um because with the new the new album the keyboard is definitely a bigger player overall there's a lot of songs that are driven by the keyboard almost so there's some parts where tommy's playing a weird keyboard riff and he's got to sing at the same time and the rhythms are all weird and you know, it's just like he's got to, you know, it's just like, well, I guess I got to lock myself into a closet and practice this thing right. for a few days. Um, so, yeah, there's always stuff like that, you know, where you're kind of worried about whether or not you can pull it off. But we always manage to, to figure it out. You know, everybody's very ambitious and, right. and everybody individually is, is, is pretty determined to, to make it work. Cool. Now, you mentioned, too, that this album has a lot more piano, a lot more keyboards. Were you guys nervous bringing that more, much more keyboard into into the band sound not really because i think we had we've sort of tinkered with that in the past right. the past couple albums anyway and uh dan in particular was starting to utilize the keyboard and the piano as a songwriting tool uh more and more uh, for some of his parts so it just it, it almost became a natural thing that we would incorporate more um key based uh keyboard based parts okay. into our music uh, it wasn't even like a real conscious decision. It was just like all of a sudden we listened back to it and be like, oh, wow, this whole song is like the keyboard is like the main instrument. You know what I mean? Right. So it just, it just kind of worked out that way. It doesn't surprise me at all, really, um, right. the way things have been going and evolving over the years. Cool. Now, Coma Ecleptic is, is a concept album. You guys have done concept albums before in the past. When you guys are writing a concept album, how do you approach, you know, the story and the character and, and coming out with things like with things like that and, and kind of determining how the story flows with the music? Right. Well, we I mean, really, that's all Tommy, you know, he, with this one, he came up with with sort of a basic outline for a story mm-hmm. um, and bounced it off of us. And we thought it was cool. You know, we thought it was kind of a neat idea that would uh, that would kind of fit the music. Um and then from there, like, as we start writing the music, I mean, we write music very conceptually anyway. Like, we right. bring back a lot of themes and musical themes and stuff like that. So I just, I just think Tommy does a really good job of lyricizing the story to the music. You know, it kind of fits the dynamics and the ebbs and flows of the music. And uh, and that's really important. You know, I think emotionally, like, the lyrics have to reflect the sound of the music yeah. at, at that particular time. And I think yeah, Tommy does a really cool, really good job of that, you know, um, 
especially with his lyrics style, which is a lot of times very stream of conscious. Like he writes and he writes in the perspective of the characters. Right. So um, because he does that, I think he's able to to really capture like the the essence of the of what's happening musically, and so it all fits together very seamlessly. Um, um, but yeah, that's really all Tommy. You know, we have to give him all the credit in the world right. for that. You know, he he really kind of especially for this album. I mean, he, he sort of came up with the idea, came up with the story and, and then wrote the lyrics, which is, is really hard to do. You know, I wouldn't yeah. want to, I, <laughs> I wouldn't want to be tasked with that, you know, to hear, to hear the music that we write. And of course, Tommy's part of the music writing as well. He right. writes a lot, a lot of the music. So, but still, I mean, to, to take this music and, and try to write a story over it and, right. and lyricize it and, and, and figure out what parts do you need to be screaming and what parts, maybe call for a more subtle melodic approach. I mean, all that stuff is like, to me, sounds like a nightmare to try to figure out, but right. uh, yeah, he did a, he did a great job. Um, is there any plans to maybe going out on a tour and maybe doing the entire album live? Like you guys done with parallax and the vast or, you know, with you know, production and, and whatnot. Yeah, we definitely are going to do that. Hopefully in the fall. I mean, we, we kind of did it backwards this time in the past. We, put out the album and then immediately went out and toured and played the whole record. And mm-hmm. and that's great, but we just wanted to do something different this time. We wanted people to be able to listen to the album and let it sort of digest for a right. long period of time before we inundated them with 65 minutes of it right. uh, in a live setting. You know, we felt like it might be a little overwhelming if, if they saw the whole show and weren't quite familiar with the material just yet. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think we're gonna just we're just we just decided to wait this time, okay. and uh, hopefully in the fall we'll hit the road and and do kind of a full a full uh, do the full album and have some visuals and lights that that go along with it and everything. And hopefully the plan or you know our hope is that people will be familiar enough with the material at that point that it'll become it'll be a little more I guess a little easier for them to take it in, right? And won't be quite so overwhelming. Now, one thing too, I, I kind of with concept albums, and you know, you kind of need all the songs as the whole story. And with the way music is now, and a lot more people are just like streaming or buying one song or, or whatnot. Does that? Do you have any like concerns or thoughts on you know people missing out on the whole experience by you know with streaming or just picking and choosing? Yeah, I mean, things are so much different now. I mean. You know, when I think of like, you know, Pink Floyd's The Wall right. or something like that, it was like people kind of almost didn't have a choice but to be completely immersed in the whole thing. You know, if you buy the album, like you're immediately sort of sucked into the whole story and the whole concept and everything like that. It, it's much different now. I mean, we would prefer it to be like that. Yeah, we would prefer everyone to have the, all the lyrics in front of them and the layout and all the stuff and really get the full experience or what we what we we intended to be the full experience. But uh, like you said, you know, a lot of people are streaming albums on YouTube now um, at low quality audio. And, right. and that's just the reality or they're, you know, buying it on iTunes and they don't have the lyrics and they just, you know, so they're just listening to it at face value. So we have to be aware of that as a band. That that's how a lot of people are listening to our music. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, it kind of sucks. But at the same time, we're you know, we try to write music that people can just kind of jam out to regardless you know right. if you want to immerse yourself in the full the full deal if you want to nerd out with the lyrics and the concept and, and all that stuff and the visuals that's great 
But if you want to just listen to some weird, heavy music, then that's fine too. And we're okay with that. Um, and we're aware of that. We're aware that that's part of our, you know, a part of our target audience is people that just want to hear the music. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's fine. So that's, that's sort of the world we live in. So we right. have to be aware of that. Um, now you have a, a signature model, Ibanez guitar, and uh, I know recently at the last name they kind of introduced like a lower price model and whatnot. Can you talk a little bit about you know your guitar and, and designing your guitar, and because it, it's you know it's a beautiful looking guitar, and I kind of want to talk well, a little you. bit about you know how you came up with that guitar and, and working with Ibanez. Well, um, well, thank you first of all, and. Um... I like the way it looks too, but uh, <laughs> I guess I had always, you know, growing up, I always played Ibanez. I loved Ibanez in right. particular, the, uh, the S series guitars, thinner body and mm-hmm. just, I, it was a very comfortable guitar to play. So I always loved that guitar. And, um, when the opportunity came to, to do a signature model, I, you know, obviously I was elated and, uh, and I knew immediately that it was going to be based at least loosely on that S series guitar because it was so close to my heart. I mean, it was just part of my musical DNA. I mean, I learned how to play guitar on, on an Ibanez S series guitar. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I, when I, you know, when we designed it, I, I wanted a unique look, which is why I chose a swamp ash body as opposed to, you know, a classic mahogany or, Mm -hmm. or whatever. I wanted it to have kind of a unique look to it. And, and Swamp Ash is just a beautiful wood yeah. to look at. For me, they all look different. They all have the way the grains look. I just love the way Swamp Ash looks. And, um, you know, I just went with a the finish is just a very thin black oil finish, which showcases the the grain in the wood. And, and I feel like it ages well, you know, right. as the guitar is being played, it, you know, the way it fades and the way that you're, sweat kind of corrodes yeah. it a little bit you know it, it just ages well and, and has has a lot of character as, as the years go by so that was a big reason why i chose that and then beyond that you know it's it's a little thicker than than a traditional s-series guitar mm-hmm. um and it's all it's streamlined in in some ways because it doesn't have a tone knob right. um i never used a tone knob as a guitar player i've just never used one so i opted instead to have just a switch that would tap the coils so that um, you could get sort of a single coil Stratocaster type sound, um, which is very useful for our stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, that was really the crux of what I wanted to do with the guitar. You know, I wanted a lot of the classic Ibanez features that I always loved as a kid. Right. And then just to sort of put my little spin on it and incorporate some things that I've sort of learned over the years uh, of what I like and don't like in a guitar, you know, and, uh, Ivan has brought back the low pro edge tremolo, which I, which I loved. It's always my favorite bridge of theirs. And so we have that on there and, um, yeah, it's just a really clean, clean looking guitar. It's sort of, it's kind of metal looking, but also kind of classy looking. And that's sort of right down my, my alley, I guess. So I wanted it to be kind of sort of, I guess straddle the line of, of sort of a, a classic kind of metal guitar right. and a more kind of classy, like fusion-y looking guitar or something like that. So yeah, really proud of how it came out and they're just awesome to work with uh, as a company and, 
and really get it. You know, they just really always have understood what guitarists want. Right. And uh, I think that's why they've had some guys like Steve Vai and Joe Satriani and Pat Metheny, all these guys that have been playing Ibanez guitars for decades and decades, you know, right. because Ibanez really gets it. They know what artists want. Oh, and uh, I, I'm a huge fan of Ivanez too. I've always played the RGs ever since I was a kid, mm-hmm. and th- those wizard necks are just phenomenal necks They're to play amazing. on. Yeah, <laughs> they almost play themselves. Exactly. Um, yeah. But uh, again, I want to thank you for coming on the show and talking to us. Um, looking forward to seeing you guys. will be here on Saturday. Uh, you know, so again, thanks for coming on the show. Good luck with the rest of the tour, and we'll be seeing you here this weekend. Thank you very much, man. I appreciate it. Okay, I'd like to thank Paul for taking time and joining us. Between the Baird and Me will be at Stage AE on April 9th, along with August Burns, Red, and Good Tiger. Up next, please welcome back to the show the one and only Joe Satriani. Joe's currently out on tour with his Surfing the Shockwave World Tour, and John had a chance to sit down and talk to him about that tour, which will be hitting Pittsburgh on April 12th at the Carnegie Music Hall in Munhall. Before we get to that, though, here's a track from his latest album, Shockwave Supernova. This is Shockwave Supernova. Ladies and gentlemen, pleasure to welcome to the show guitarist extraordinaire Joe Satriani. How you doing, Joe? I'm very good today. Thank you. Wonderful. You are, um, if the tour itinerary serves me correctly, you're slowly making your way up the eastern seaboard still. Uh, you're actually in Pennsylvania today, correct? That's right, yeah. All right, and then you're headed up north and then kind of swinging through Pittsburgh and, and slowly kind of making your way the entire way around the country. Um Question on the tour specifically, when you set down to do, you know, kind of uh, surfing to shockwaves, um, and p- how did you put the set list together? Well, um, you know, the, the theory that I've developed over the years is that um, you need to uh, put a set list together that really intrigues you, that really makes you feel like you're really going to get off artistically every night. That's very important. Mm -hmm. You definitely need to do, excuse me, uh, what I would call, you know, the hits, the the songs that, you know, from experience have really reached out and touched people uh, in a big way and that have become, you know, a part of their lives. I, I hesitate to use the word hits because my career really isn't based on uh, you know, hit singles, but mm-hmm. let's use that word for lack of a better word or phrase. So you know that you've got to include the hits um, in the set. Um, the other thing uh, that I want to point out about that little portion is that there's a good chance that half or maybe more than half of the audience has never seen you before. Mm-hmm. And kind of a disservice to all the effort they put in and the sacrifice to finally come and see you. So um, I I love doing that. I love bringing the songs that they expect to life on stage. Uh, The third element, of course, is uh, the new material. Um, I think that's uh, extremely important to do. Uh, 
again, that's sort of tied to that first element of putting together a set that really gets you off artistically. Otherwise, the tour right. kind of grinds to a halt in a week or two. Everyone gets sort of bummed out. Um, so to keep everybody smiling and feeling like they've got something to say, uh, I, I think uh, that new material fills the bill perfectly because, you know, when you make a record, it's like the, the first attempt at, at recording the song, at playing the song. For the rest of your career, if you're lucky enough, you get a chance to keep working on it. And that's what the tour affords us, is the ability to walk on stage and say, all right, let's take this, this track and let's see what, let's show the people what we've learned, how we can make it even better than the album. So you put all those elements together and you get a great show, I think. Yeah. Now, you touched on something that that kind of struck me when you said about hits. And I think one of the things that's always kind of intrigued me about your career, you, you obviously came into your own artistically in the 80s, where a lot of your contemporary, I hate to use the word shredders, but a lot of, of the marquee guitarists of that era were pulled into different bands. I mean, obviously you did some time briefly with, with uh, Mick Jagger and Deep Purple, but really didn't go the band route until Chickenfoot. Um do you think that helped, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, maybe it didn't give you the incredibly huge multi-platinum success of the 80s for some of those, even though you did have great success, but maybe in the long run gave you greater longevity? Well, I think, um, you know, the cool thing about it is that I was, in a way, I was left alone uh, to work on, on my material. Mm-hmm. Um, that, I think, is extremely important. There's one thing that, you know, to, to sort of, you know, spice up somebody else's song. It's a very different thing to actually write a melody about a specific person, an event, a place, a feeling, a daydream, a wish, you know, a desire, and to dedicate, you know, all of yourself to making sure that melody is the best. And then afterwards, you apply your technique. To me, that's so totally different than being invited to a session where they just want you to go crazy for eight bars right. so they can say they've got you on their track. You know, uh, I turned down a lot of work for that because I knew that's what they wanted me to do. They wanted me to just be that surfing with the alien guy on their right. song for eight bars. I found that pretty offensive, uh, especially since... I was doing that before I was famous and I always was told to shut up, you know, and turn down and don't do that. Um, So uh, I thought, well, this is a kind of a strange blessing. I I didn't start out thinking I would have a a career doing instrumentals, but quite by accident, that's where I landed. And I found out that it was really a, a wonderful passion because it connected quite naturally to my desires as a young kid wanting to know the secrets of music loving hendrix as well as jazz as well as classical music and in in my you know heart of hearts to me it was all the same it was just when it was good it was because they were great musicians pouring all they had into making the music the, the most perfect version or vision uh you know, that they could come up with. And I wanted to be like that. I, I didn't think that it would be me playing electric guitar instrumentals at the time, but I knew that I wanted to pursue that lifestyle of, of really um, 
taking it on as if it were the most important thing in the world. And, and, was there a, uh, a oh, I, sorry? Go ahead. That's okay. Was there a point in your playing where you realized you could do instrumentals? Like you know, I think a lot of guitarists, you know, kind of did their instrumental album aside from what they did, you know, normally. But I mean, it's much different, you know, to do it album and al- album after album. And, you know, not just do kind of flashy pyrotechnic stuff. I mean, you actually, you know, have songs with melodies that, you know, God bless us, we all try to sing along to it when you play. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm happy people sing along. I mean, I I work on editing those melodies down to their most essential components. You know, that's Mm -hmm. something probably what I spend the most time doing when I'm writing a song is, is editing down, you know, um, I think uh, that from the beginning, uh, I, I never uh, was impressed with uh, technique all by itself. It's one of those things that, you know, can be learned by anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, you, you know, 20 years ago, you'd say that and people would maybe view that with suspicion. But today with YouTube, in five minutes, we can find the greatest guitar players in the world and they're all over the world and probably they're all under 15. Mm-hmm. And that's because uh, the, the YouTube exposes the, the, um, the universality of technical ability. It used to be in the old days, you think, oh, only this guy can play fast or only this guy knows how to make that sound. But now right. we know that's not true. And, and, um, and so uh, as soon as you come up with something you know, unique that's technical, it will, if it's popular, it will get learned within 24 hours and probably done better by somebody else mm-hmm. who purely because of their perspective of being able to see it from across the room rather than like you while you're holding your time, they, they gain an edge on it. And so I always thought to myself, even when I was very young, that can't be what it is. It, it's, it's music. It's the music that is the most unique thing. And it's the most unique thing that's going to come from you is your emotional and artistic expression. So that should be the thing you work on. And then if the song sort of begs of you to come up with some special technique to make it work, well then go ahead and, uh, and practice that. And so it, it was a big shift. I mean, after the first four or five years of trying to play guitar, I came upon that feeling and I thought, um, that's actually the best way to do it. Write a crazy song. Let's say you write a song about, you know, uh, going 600 miles an hour on the uh, Bonneville salt flats, write the song first. And then if you realize when you go to record it, that you need a lot of notes, Mm -hmm. then teach yourself how to make that work. And then there's a real reason for it. Then it becomes unique for that song not just a bland display of technique. Now, um, how inspiring, I mean, you, you've in the last couple records now, I've worked with Brian and Marco, and obviously Mike uh, has been around for a while, but do you draw inspiration, and, and does that kind of keep it fun for you to play with different musicians like that? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Uh, players come in with, uh, you know, uh, interesting uh abilities uh their opinions about music and how they sort of bounce off the other guy which is really 
important. You know, some guy comes in and he's just like a real groove player and you, you hook him up with someone maybe who doesn't always think that way. Maybe they're, they're more progressive or um, they like to fill things up a little bit more. And then the two of them bounce off each other and they come to this new place. And if you give them the right song, you suddenly not only create something new, but you open their eyes to something they never thought they could be a part of before. And that creates a special energy in the studio that you definitely want to record, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think some of the greatest records in the world are are documents of that sort of chaotic juxtaposition of players. And the really good producers are good at that, you know. Someone like Glenn Johns will sit down with a, an artist and say, you know, I think you should you should try that drummer and this bass player. And, and you know, I worked with this violinist and I know you're not thinking violin, but let's bring him along anyway. And before you know it, you've got a classic record that no one thought they could do, you know, and no one, uh, no one in the audience was expecting. And yet it, it, it creates a new genre almost all by itself. Now, when you went away or, I mean, you've done this so many times now to create, you know, the albums, you know, the Shockwave Supernova being the latest, do you have to kind of, turn the radio off and kind of keep your head clear of other musicians, you know, distractions, or, or do you maybe pull out some artists that you, you know, find influential as a kid? How do you kind of either clear your mind or, or inspire yourself when you're writing these types of melodies? Is there, is there a particular pattern you follow? I don't know if there's a particular pattern. I mean, that's a good question. Uh, there's to some degree you want to, uh, you know, stay pure, right, to your vision. Uh, um, but to the other degree, you've got to make sure you're not copying somebody outright. And that right. can happen because ultimately all musicians are fans of other musicians. And right. we build our style on the foundation of our, our the artists that are our favorites. Um, so every once in a while, you know, you'll be writing a song and you go, oh, shoot, is that that, yeah. you know, is that that Mozart piano piece that I just ripped off, you know? Right. Or is, is, am I just playing something from that, you know, Beck album a couple of records ago? So you got to check in every once in a while. I think you owe it to your comrades to make sure that, you know, you might, it's cool to tip your hat to somebody. Um, but, um, you don't want to get too close where you feel like, Hey, you're just sort of copping this thing, you know? Right. It's a, it's a funny thing because certain styles of music really demand a little bit more originality. But in fact, if you want to be uh, invited into the club of your choice, let's say you want to be a, progr- a progressive band or you want to be accepted by the EDM people or you, or you want to be accepted by the blues purists, you basically have to imitate who's ever popular. Very well said. In order yeah. to be accepted into the club, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a it's a double standard, without a doubt. You know, a blues guitar player can go up there and rip off Albert King, and everybody thinks they're great, and no one says, "Hey, you're ripping off Albert King," because yeah. it's just become accepted to rip the guy off and make it part of your style. And uh, you know, if you put a guitar solo into an EDM thing, no one will take you seriously. Uh, because that's a, that's a rule, you know, no guitar solo, damn it, you know, um, yeah. 
I think if you're a progressive band, you're allowed to just kind of rip off any of the pro- progressive bands from the late 60s and the early 70s. Um, and, you know, from King Crimson to Yes. And, and people just think, well, that's just you showing how cool you are. It's very similar to the blues world. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, it's a funny thing, isn't it? I mean, uh, I, I don't know. I've just decided to throw my hands up and go, I'm just not even going to think about it anymore. It's just too freaky. Yeah, I was just uh, I curious. I know, though, that the, the most important thing is the melody. You've got to create and take responsibility for your melodies. And if you think they're close to somebody that you really admire, then you should you should edit it out. You should edit out those parts where you think you're perhaps copying something that sure. they've done. You know? So um, just one other thing. I know uh, you're obviously a busy man, but the, the, you're going to be doing some shows with Chickenfoot, and that's got to be kind of a fun thing, you know, circle those dates on your calendar. Um, how did yeah. how did the um, those shows come? Is it just luck that everyone's schedule lined up, or did you guys kind of set off two or three years ago and say circle those dates in May? No, I I think um, they. I mean, everything has to really come from Sam. Um, and then for you know, if Sam decides there's two days, you know, where he wants to do Chicken Foot, he generally will let me know first. And then if I, I say, yeah, I'm in town, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm available, then he'll go find out if Chad's, you know, in town mm-hmm. as well and not tied up with the Chili Peppers. Um, we're not really like a band that is going to be touring in, in the foreseeable future at all. And um, although we have a new track that we just completed, um, mm-hmm. I don't think um, touring is, is in our future at all, but these dates might come up. And since Sam has some unusual um, tie-ins with uh, uh, venues uh, through his other businesses, right. these things kind of pop up. And this one happens to be at a, a theater that's in a casino that's, you know, that has, does business with his Cabo Wabo Cantina up there. And he goes up there all the time. And it just so happened, you know what I mean? Uh, so, um, I'm just grateful that we get to play because I just think the band is absolutely amazing and it's a, it's a real shame that we were not touring and making records on a regular basis. Um, uh, but that's that, just... Creatively, does that kind of charge your batteries to, you know, to get in a completely different situation with a vocalist, particularly to just kind of do something really, really different? Absolutely. Um, I grew up playing that kind of music. Uh, I was always in a rock band with a singer. It was, I, I think I was in a four-piece band for most of my career and uh, up until I turned into, into an instrumentalist. So it feels very natural to me, um, and I draw upon, like the other guys in the band, that you know we're really just drawing upon what we grew up listening to. Mm-hmm. Chickenfoot is a celebration of our classic rock roots before it was called classic rock, you know? Right. And... and you know, by chance, when we played together, we didn't sound like, you know, Joe meets Van Halen meets Chili Peppers. We just sounded right. like something else. Mm-hmm. It just sounded like a, a a fifth element there. And we just thought, well, this is worth it now because it's not a celebrity jam anymore. It's a real band. So, uh, you know, we took it one step at a time. It was a kind of a do-it-yourself project. Mm-hmm. We recorded the records on our own dime and then had our own time you know frame and then sought 
partners in the industry to, to help release and promote the records. Right. But that that uh, actually made it more interesting that way because it was um, an effort to just do something different than what we do for our real jobs. Right. You know, with with record deals and real tours. So. Uh, you know, the only downside is is that we don't make enough records or tour enough, I suppose. Yeah. Well, Joe, I want to thank you so much for the time. I know you've got uh, things to do. You were going to be in Pittsburgh next uh, Tuesday on the 12th uh, doing a show in Munhall at the Carnegie Library uh, in Munhall. We're looking forward to seeing you and uh, for many albums to come still. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. Okay, I'd like to thank Joe for taking time to talk to us again. He'll be at uh, the Carnegie Music Hall in Munhall on April 12th. That about wraps up this episode. I'd like to thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to drop us a line at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. You can also check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash ironcityrocks. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash ironcityrocks. And check out our Instagram at instagram.com forward slash ironcityrocks. Till next time, thanks for listening.